0: Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability.
1: We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, sustainable simplicity close to home available in our online marketplace. In the book, we've woven an easy-to-digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow-living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process. For you, Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the
0: code The Good Dirt in our online marketplace. So use the code The Good Dirt, T H E G O O D D I R T, at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer Online Marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Thanks,
2: everybody. I think in general, the sense of value perception has to change, you know, because, yes, you can keep on buying stuff for $20, but it has such a detrimental impact on the planet that, by the way, that particular chicken will come home to roost at some point, right? That $20 garment that you bought cheaply is going to impact things down the line and is going to have a destructive component to it It is going to cause more environmental but also more financial damage.
1: We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now. The farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad
0: you're here. Now, let's dig in. Hello, Mom. Do you want to tell us where you are joining us from today? Yes, I
1: am at Locals. It's a restaurant here in poolsville maryland our little town and i'm i'm here at this wonderful coffee shop with this wonderful coffee and local food breakfast lunch you can eat inside outside you can bring your dog you can see everybody in town it's so much fun i'm here because they have good internet and david has so kindly allowed me to come here and record yeah so internet companies if you're listening
0: We'd love to get some internet put in at the farm. That'd be great. It would be great. (laughs) So I can't believe July is almost over. Happy birthday, Mom. Oh, yeah. I almost forgot. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that you had a great birthday. And yeah, so what's been going on this summer here at The Good Dirt? Well, it's
1: been a really eventful summer, as you know, and others who have been listening. We launched our new voicemail communication system last month, and that has been so much fun. This allows anyone at any time to reach out, call, leave us a message. Thank you so much to all of you who've called in to say hello, where you're calling from, what the good dirt means to you, just really anything you want to say about the good dirt sustainability, the episodes, anything you have to offer us in terms of you and the good dirt episode or really anything at all. Thank you all for being so positive and affirming about the show. We look forward to hearing from more of you. Can call it anytime,
0: 443-459-1950. The number is in the show notes and in our bio on Instagram. Hopefully it's easy to find. And this is a great way to support the show because it just lets us know who's listening and what's up out there. And also the very best way to support the show is by joining our membership. So we have an online community called The Almanac. It's a slow living network where we publish a ton of content every month all about slow living. Memberships directly support production of this show. And even if you think that you're not interested in being a part of an online community, that's okay. Your membership is still crucial in making sure that this show happens every week. So we appreciate you so much. We welcomed several new members into the Almanac this month, and we're so happy to have you and so grateful for your support.
1: Yes, and if you're a regular listener here, you'll also know that we just celebrated our 100th episode landmark, and this has given us the opportunity to look back and reflect on why we're doing this and why we want to keep doing it, because it seems to be reaching more and more people who want these conversations and this information, and because I think more and more people out there are not only feeling the need for this shift towards a better way for all of us to live with each other and on the planet, but also because they want to know how to do it. They want to know what they can do as individuals in their daily lives to move in a better direction. And just week after week, we bring you conversations with people that tell you all about this. And it's just really been such a great adventure. So if you want to keep hearing from us at The Good Dirt, join us in the Almanac. We thank you so much. Okay, so before we get into today's episode, I want to give a shout out to an organization that we follow. And if you've listened for a while, you would have heard us talking about it. It's Plastic Free July, which is a global movement that helps millions of people be part of the solution to plastic pollution by offering A challenge every July to reduce the plastic use in your life. So even though July is almost over this year, we want to direct you to their website, plasticfreejuly.org. It's full of all kinds of great information and tips on reducing the use of plastic in your life, even beyond July, of course, because as we all know, this is something that we all need to address, both as individuals and collectively, as we move towards a consumer-driven demand for policy changes Up the ladder.
0: It's interesting that Plastic Free July, like at one point, whenever Plastic Free July started, it was so revolutionary that we just had to confine it to one month, right? Like Plastic Free July. And now it seems like it should always be Plastic Free July. It's like, of course, it should be
1: Plastic Free every day. Yeah. (laughs) But I know we all have to start somewhere. Right. So, what's up for today's episode, Emma? Today we have Edzard Vanderwick.
0: He is the co founder and CEO of Sheep Inc one of the world's first carbon-negative clothing brands, which is super fun, and you'll learn more about that in the episode. Sheep Inc.'s focus is on regenerative knitwear and educating the consumer on the wonders of wool, even in the summer. So they have a full, like, summer of wool line, which we're really excited to share with you guys. And they even sent us a couple of samples from the collection. It is just the most luscious, like, light, Wool clothing. I got a sweater and a little like turtleneck, and it just seems crazy to think about wearing wool in the summer. But as you'll hear Edzard explain, wool is extremely temperature regulating and wonderful, and you can totally wear it in the summer. And so that's kind of their mission behind this collection, which is really exciting. Sheep Inc. wants to create the blueprint for the garment industry to change its ways and to bring us back in touch with where our
1: clothes come from. Sounds awesome. So as you can imagine, we were so excited to talk to Edzard because this is exactly what The Good Dirt is all about. Among other things, sustainable, beyond sustainable clothing. This is carbon negative clothing. So it's really interesting stuff, really great to learn about. So listen and enjoy. Here's Edzard Vanderwick from Sheep,
2: Inc., My name is Edzard van de and I'm the co-founder of a fashion brand called Sheep Inc. Um, that launched about end of 2019. And basically, Sheep Inc. really set out from the get-go to redefine how you can build brands in fashion. That was really our ambition from the beginning. It was like, what does a brand of tomorrow look like in fashion? If you can start with a blank sheet of paper and you have the right mindset, how could you start creating garments and creating a business That would have a positive impact on the future. The reason for wanting to start in fashion was because it is a huge contributor to the climate crisis, as you may know, but the the statistics are really damning. Um, about 8 to 12% of the CO2 impact worldwide comes from basically from the fashion industry and was linked back to the fashion industry. And that simply needs to change. And unfortunately, it is one of those legacy industries that is not changing quick enough. And so we really came in and looked at that and decided that we wanted to figure out how to do things differently, specifically looking at the real impacts of fashion, which comes from the supply chain, which is 97% of the impacts that Scope Three emissions come from CO2 impact from supply chain. So not actually from the companies themselves, but from how they produce their garments. So taking that big piece into account, I can give you the journey to shipping. I actually first really started thinking about the impact of fashion in my last business, which was a also an e-commerce business in fashion and taking all those stats that I just kind of reeled off there like what really shocked me at the time setting up that business was how little awareness I suppose that even I had about how bad the impact was and it took me operating within the industry to basically figure out what impact the industry I was operating in was the, the damage that it was doing so taking that into account I really decided that again that I wanted to do something different And so Sheeping came about through that. And what we do at our core in Sheeping is we create network. That's the starting point for us. New way is a great category in fashion to be in. It's big space. It's one of the biggest kind of product categories to operate within, but it is also one of the most destructive as well within the kind of like the overall fashion space. So what we did is we looked at that and we said, okay, again, with this idea of what would you do with a blank sheet of paper? If you're going to set up a knitwear brand, but in general also, if you want to be doing things differently to the fashion industry in general, how can you have a positive impact as a brand and how can you really start thinking foundationally about bringing about change? And so what we did is to do that, we took the traditional supply chain model in fashion and turned it on its head. And it's a simple way of putting it. The way that fashion brands traditionally work is if they want to make a garment, they go to a manufacturer, they say, I want to create a t-shirt, I want to create a sweatshirt, whatever garment you're creating. And often they kind of give the brief to the manufacturer, they then go through a selection process and they're picking the yarns, etc. And then the garment is manufactured. And a huge issue with that way of manufacturing is that you lose visibility very, very quickly. And what then happens is that you don't necessarily know exactly where your yarns are coming from. You don't, for instance, always know how the yarns being dyed, how they're being treated. And going back to the raw material stage is something you definitely don't have visibility on. So this is the huge problem of fashion in the fact that it has this huge supply chain impact. The problem that sits alongside it is that people actually don't know what their supply chain is doing. And it just means that you have no idea as a fashion brand, majority of them, a huge majority of them don't actually know if, for instance, the raw materials are causing a huge amount of environmental impact. If there's ethical issues in the supply chain, they simply don't have that insight to be able to understand how to fix things because there is so little transparency. So we looked at that and said, well, that needs to change. And the only way you're going to be able to change that is if you bring 100% transparency into your supply chain, because that's when you know how to really understand it. And the only way that you're going to be able to do that is not by starting in the manufacturing stage, but it's actually by starting in reverse, or you would argue in the right way, which is starting at the raw material stage and kind of working your way up through the supply chain. That was the model that we kind of started with. We said, okay, if we want to have full control of our supply chain, we need to overturn the traditional supply chain model. Then knowing that we wanted to be a knitwear, the big question mark came then, how do we create it? What materials should we use? How should we manufacture it? And how do we do so to not only get a great product quality, because that is imperative, and you you can't have a sustainable fashion brand proposition if your product's not good enough. How can you create a really, really high quality product but how can you, again, do so whilst having positive impacts on the environment? And so what we do is we very quickly figured out that we wanted to use merino wool as our material. The reason for that is that it's a great natural fiber. It is a natural fiber, therefore it's 100% biodegradable, so it doesn't leave any impacts after it's had its life compared to a synthetic fiber, which obviously stays in landfills for eons. We wanted to use merino wool. Also because it feels great against the skin. It's incredibly soft. It has great technical capabilities. It's very good at temperature regulating. It doesn't hold any moisture. Therefore, you know, if you sweat, it doesn't start to smell the garment. So it has all these amazing properties to it, and through those amazing properties, it also means it doesn't need to be washed that often, which is of course also a huge problem. If you look at, for instance, a cotton t-shirt, a huge part of its impact comes from the fact that you need to continuously wash it after every use, pretty much. So knowing that was the fibre that we wanted to use, then the big question came, okay, but how can we justify using it? Like, can we justify using marina wool knowing that it's this great fibre? And how then do we turn it into a final garment in the most innovatively sustainable way possible? The way that we do that is from the... The raw material stage we got into conversations with a lot of farms and sorry some farms in New Zealand that were really at the forefront of the regenerative farming movement so really trying to figure out how they can operate in a way that again has a positive impact on the environment so understanding how to kind of manage biodiversity on their land how to integrate the sheep in a way that is more holistic into kind of the overall biodiversity of the farm And to basically optimise all their entire property for natural carbon sequestration. And on top of that, also bringing in pieces like making sure that all the farm equipment is running electric where possible, not using diesel engines. And also bringing in pieces like giving the sheep and seaweed supplements to cut down their methane output. So really, again, trying to kind of optimise basically at the raw material stage for having a carbon negative impact. And that was for us really a starting point. We wanted to be, again, regenerative. We wanted to have a carbon negative impact because the real issue, again, with fashion is that there's a bunch of big fashion brands out there saying they're going to be carbon neutral by 2035, 2040, whatever their target is. The real problem is it's only a select group of the brands that are really targeting it. So it's, still a, it's a low percentage of what's needed. And on top of that, the industry is growing and having a bunch of brands who are carbon neutral is not also mitigating for the impacts of the rest of the industry. So we looked at that and said, we want to actually have a positive CO2 impact. So we actually want to be carbon negative.
0: So you said you came into this through, you had an e-commerce brand before this, and that's kind of when your eyes were open to sort of the state of the fashion industry and how destructive it is, correct? Yeah. So can you talk about that non-sustainable, eco-friendly fashion venture to, was it just because you wanted to be more eco-friendly or what was it about that shift for you personally and your sort of journey?
2: So I listen the, the first thing I said I already we were building sustainability pieces into how we were kind of like doing things right so the materials we were using we were actually using a lot of recycled materials and that I think the real piece for me there came like I really wanted to create an iconic sustainable fashion brand proposition and that's not for my ego purposes but because I just wanted to actually set something up that could prove to the industry that there's a different way of doing it And that had to start with a blank sheet of paper because you have to start that with every single part of the business geared towards that, right? So that was super important for me. On top of that, the other big piece that I wanted to do is that I also wanted to bring kind of consumer change into play. So I didn't want to just kind of prove to the industry that things could be done differently. So I also wanted consumers to start changing the way that they're buying stuff or at least start to think about the provenance and the impact behind the things that they buy. And so that was really how the whole thing kind of came together. It was like this kind of idea of like, okay, it has to be this very sustainable fashion brand proposition. And then conceptually, that also has to be something that gets people to think and to understand impact and to really start to drive change in their own personal behavior. And that was kind of like the meeting of those two things was super important for me. And I just knew that in my last brand proposition, it was like, it was an established brand at that point. Again, there was lots of sustainability elements being brought into the business and then all the products were starting to be made from recycled materials and everything from packaging. All of that, those bits and pieces were being thought through, but <laughs> it couldn't do something that I wanted to do, which was fundamentally shift consumer and the industry into a new direction. This was simply, so it was almost like trying to make the business be sustainable rather than really start with an inherent sustainable proposition that could hopefully be seen as as being innovative in the market so something that is kind of more proactive than being reactionary to the market
1: it's so interesting what you said that you had the realization to create a truly sustainable that term sustainable versus regenerative but in order to create a truly sustainable fashion business you had to start with a blank slate and that's Mm -hmm. interesting because we talked to so many people who are doing brands and working in sustainability and so forth And it's true that there's so many aspects of it. There's so many pieces of the puzzle that if you try to approach it from like the whole thing, it seems like an impossible task. The supply chain, the sourcing, you know, the manufacturing, all the chemicals used, all the materials used, all of these things is just so vast, the whole thing. And then what you just said, getting the consumer on board as well. So for you to say, I'm going to start a business using a blank slate and do the whole thing that's really really ambitious it's really impressive and it's not what you hear. You, you hear more companies saying they're going to take this piece of it or that piece of it or that's all they can do. But I think that's where sheep ink goes from sustainability into regeneration. I want you to talk about that a little bit because that is a really, really important piece. And what you were talking about, what you were feeding the sheep and so forth because it affected the methane and all these things. We hear a lot about carbon neutral. You guys are carbon negative. So I want you to talk more about that and really let that sink into our listeners. This is different.
2: Yeah, so the, this, this sense of carbon negativity again came from exactly what you've talked about is that so much of the industry is geared towards carbon neutrality. That was a big conversation piece, it still is. But a couple of years ago, it was like we're going to be net zero by 2035. And again, we looked at that and went, That's slightly terrifying <laughs> because, first of all, there's only a couple of brands, you know, it's yes, it may end up being 30 35 of the industry whatever the numbers end up may being but that's only a group of people who are neutralizing their impact they're not actually in many cases improving the planets in any sense right and so i think that for us is really important we looked at that and we said well actually there has to be this new way of doing business where again you have a plus effect on the planet and That for us was achieved through being carbon negative and that meant that our supply chain naturally, so without buying offsets, we had to set up the supply chain in a way that it, like there was more CO2 naturally being mitigated in our supply chain than was being produced. Again, obviously we have the sheep, the problem as it were, like that's a methane producing animal, but again it produces a fiber that is natural and great and it's obviously in itself regenerative, it grows back year after year. So it's an amazing fiber, but the sheep was the problem in that sense. So that's what we really needed to figure out at that point was like, OK, how do we now take this carbon negativity piece and how do we kind of make it work within this supply chain? And the way that we did that was, again, by working with these farms that really their single goal is to kind of lower and get a negative carbon footprint. Right? And so they've optimized everything on their farms to be able to achieve that. And that means every single kilogram of wool that we source from those farms, which again is a select few, has a minus 14 kilogram natural CO2 impact. So that means the kilogram of wool naturally mitigates on the farm itself minus 14 kilograms of CO2. And then it became a connect the dots exercise through the rest of the supply chain where we went, okay, we've now figured out the raw material stage. We're starting with a negative carbon balance, which is, of course, fantastic. But we now need to make sure that we don't then upset that balance as we go through the rest of the supply chain, where we just start to do business as usual. And then very quickly, your your carbon footprint will jump. So we had to then clean. you have to scour the wall, which is the next stage in the supply chain process. And we do that with a firm in. Italy, that's the first B Corp registered textile mill in Italy, and through their processes there, they are able to, again, clean the wool in, in using renewable energy. That, again, has no CO2 impact. But then the next part of the equation is also treating the yarn, which we do also in Italy and spinning it. We do it in Italy and Bulgaria, where, again, we don't use any harmful chemicals. We use process for Eternity XK, care, which is all applied using renewable energy. And then the next stage of the process is manufacturing, which we do in Portugal, using whole garment knitting machines, which is the easiest way of explaining them is they look like giant kind of desk printers and they print out the garments, which means that they have very little waste during manufacturing, because of course, normally you have cut and sew, you get end up with loads of bits of material on the floor and there's a lot of waste. And using that process, we're able to have very, very little waste during the manufacturing stage. And on top of that, also that whole process runs on renewable energy. So there's a solar panel array on the roof of our knitters runs the machines and through that whole process, we were able to have a carbon negative supply chain. So once you kind of added all the numbers up, we get to, for instance, for our hoodie, it's about a minus seven kilogram CO2, E-impact. And the important bit, because this is the bit that always jumps immediately into people's heads, which is like, if you are getting wool from New Zealand and you're cleaning it in Italy, then <laughs> you're spinning it in Italy, and then you're manufacturing it in Portugal, how the hell can you be carbon negative? And the answer to that is, and this is where it's so important for brands to do, is that you have to understand where the weight of your impact is coming from. And in our case, the weight of the impact would have come from the raw material stage. Transport is actually a very small part of the problem of the overall CO2 impact. It is only about one and a half kilograms. So I say only, of course, every amount matters. Right. Compared to a minus 14 kilogram natural sequestration that's happening at source, one and a half kilograms is obviously more than mitigated by what's happening at the farm stage. Right. And that's how we kind of, recalculate it. It's a very data-driven approach. We have all our impact. as totally um, third-party audited by, by various groups and then held to international standards, the carbon neutral protocol being one of them. Because we want to make sure that everything we are doing is also backed up by data. Right. Rather than it being something that is just us making bold claims, we want to make sure that there is this trust element that comes in where people go like, okay, their impact has been assessed by a third party. They've come in, they've done the the supply chain and they're doing what they say they're doing.
0: So when you found this specifically, I guess we can start with the farms in New Zealand, were they already set up this way when you found them? You just you knew what you were looking for and you found it? Or is that sort of a collaborative process or was it just sort of there for you to find?
2: So, the way that we came across them, so first of all, the good thing is like in New Zealand, there is farming is the biggest contributor to impacts in the country, right? It's a big, big problem. It's obviously a big farming nation. And it's unfortunately this idea of pure New Zealand and the big kind of ad campaigns that they're doing, backed up by the kind of Lord of the Rings movies of this amazing, epic, majestic landscapes and very kind of clean nature, unfortunately is. Coming under attack, especially due to farming. The thing is, like a lot of the farms realize it, that they are creating, you know, they're part of an industry that is becoming increasingly problematic. But a lot of the farms also really care about the environment and they care about the well being of their animals. They care about the well being of the planet. They, they are inherently connected to nature, they spend all day in it. And they want to come up with solutions that will basically help the planet rather than them being a part of the, the kind of like the vilified group of farmers that are causing harm. And so what was interesting about that process is, so the way we came across them practically is we started working with a group called ZQ Marino, which is a group in New Zealand who really focus on having farms. They have a group of farms they work with, and they focus on farms that have, again, animal welfare and biodiversity welfare, like very high on their list of priorities. So they have to have a certain standard to be qualified for what they call the ZQ program. And then within that group, and, and, and to that extent, only about 1% of sheep stations and, and wool providers worldwide would even qualify for the ZQ program. So it's a very high standard. They actually set a standard for um, a group called the Responsible Wool Standard as well. So they very much are kind of just class leading in their approach to uh, to these matters. But then the real question became like, okay, listen, 1% of you at the farms worldwide would qualify, but what's your 1% of your 1%? Like, who really are the farms that are leading the charge for change? And that's how we came across three farms, our initial three farms, who once again were really innovators within an innovative group, right? And one of them in particular is doing everything possible to make sure that everything on farm is, again, really, really optimised for minimal CO2 impact, the extent that it's carbon negative. And so that's how we came across them. And it, the great thing about it was like kind of a meeting of minds, right? It's like, they again, this group of people who just understand that, again, they, they want to make sure that their industry is no longer vilified. They mm-hmm. really want to be seen as people who are positive contributors to the planet rather than as, as again, being the enemy. And so they're very much driven by that. And that was for us kind of an ideal partner then to meet up
0: with. Yeah. Okay. So then going down the supply chain, we're also interested in, Especially for this, your summer wool collection, which we'll also talk more about wearing wool in the summer, but the colors are just amazing. They're fun and bright and different and curious about the dyeing process and what that looks like. And I think that's something that we're, also kind of a mystery to people how clothes get to be certain colors.
2: Yeah, so we, we use a dyeing process, it's all blue sign certified, so it means that no hazardous chemicals can be used. And the most important thing with the dyeing process is water filtration, right? So like you get all these horrific images of dyes leaking into lakes and you see these kind of bright red, you know, kind of bright red lakes, which of course is, is environmentally incredibly harmful. So what we do there is that we make sure that the water filtration process is such that actually the water entering into the factory is less clean than the water exiting the factory so they really cleanse the water of every single last drop of chemical and then again all the the kind of the process itself is once again blue sign certified that there's no hazardous chemicals now dyeing is a really interesting one because there's like a lot of we're focused a lot on like what's next in dyeing and like bringing in really natural dyes is the next thing we're working on unfortunately at the moment the dyeing industry still is you can't if from a real natural plant based dye for instance you can't get as vibrant colors as you say we're known for our colors we spend a lot of time selecting colors and if we choose a hue of red like it has to be a very particular hue of red we don't want to be like every other red in the industry we spend a lot of time selecting those but figuring out how to again move forward as we always say internally it's a journey never a destination we're always looking to improve and dyeing is next definitely next on our list to also figure out how we can get into more natural dyes and get into more and more into into kind of better dyeing practices we're actually also about to launch a t-shirt we've just done knitted t-shirts merino wool t-shirts and we're about to launch a non-dyed t-shirt oh interesting which is a white t-shirt and because new zealand merino wool the one that the type that we use is the whitest basically the whitest wool in the world you can actually release an undyed garment that looks very close to a normal white t-shirt. So that's for us really exciting because in that process, of course, there's no dyeing at all.
0: Mm, Yeah, that's fascinating. So just to clarify for people who might not know, the yarn is dyed before it's knit, right? Or do you knit the garment and then dye it?
2: No, 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 you you dye it before it's knit. So it all comes in spindles, basically kind of spindles Mm -hmm. of colors. And then, and what we've also optimized for, which is again, for sustainability purposes, is we have a certain type of yarn, it's called a 248 yarn, which is just the thickness of yarn, so many times mm-hmm. it's been wrapped around. And we've figured out a way of being able to create all our garments of a single yarn type. And the great mm-hmm. thing about that is that you then again, minimize the risk of having dead stock. So you often, for instance, if you were to release a red t-shirt as an example, and you figure out that it doesn't sell as well, you would have probably started to commit to a lot of red yarn, do you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. by us being able to use yarn across all our products, we can then, for instance, turn it into a red beanie. (laughs) or you turn it into a red hoodie, and we can figure out multiple use cases for us, and then we may figure out actually the red hoodie sells incredibly well. Because that's, again, a huge issue in fashion in general is that, of course, dead stock can account up to 20, 25% of the industry, right? It's just like stock that never goes to use. And so we really wanted to also optimize for that and, and holding a single yarn type is part of that. Also another piece is we don't, you know, we're not fashion in the sense that we have collections that come in and go out, come in and go out. We do have, we sell knitwear essentials. So it's very much around products that will have a very long shelf life. They don't necessarily have an expiry date. And um, so that means season after season, we can continue to sell a hoodie in red, right? It's not that it'll be out of fashion again after one season. that also minimizes our dead stock even if stuff sells slower we can keep it going for a long time without having to take it off and then take this on the supply basically and then also be another contributor to textile waste that makes so much sense
0: speaking of selling i'm curious how the products sell and how you mentioned a little bit at the beginning of the conversation about communicating with the consumer anytime you're trying to do anything ethically in this space it's going to obviously costs more money, which is just kind of a, a fact, a truth that we, as we f- produced and manufactured a line of clothing early on a few years ago, and we actually found that our strength was in the education piece of it, which is mm-hmm. now our podcast. So we talk about it. So it was a great learning experience for us. So I just love to talk about it with other brands who are trying to sell, do the right thing in this economy. You know what I mean?
2: <laughs> yes. So I
0: guess I'm just curious. <laughs> yes. What you think resonates with customers, what people are buying and like why it can really feel like an uphill battle sometimes. I know it seems so silly that the answer to so many problems could be if we all just wrap our heads around the fact that we might need one $300 sweater to -hmm. replace a closet full of sweaters we don't need. But that's just like so hard to wrap our brains around. So, yeah, I don't know what you want to say about anything, but i love this conversation
2: yeah listen i think value is the the big piece that that kind of emergence of fast fashion has changed our perception on value right and it's your point it was like you can buy yes you can buy a 20 dollar sweater but the value that you will get out of that will be so much less because quality is not that great often it's kind of it'll be more of a trend driven piece therefore potentially won't wear it after a few wears and the stats are out there but it's five to seven times per garment you know the people only wear garments five to seven times before chucking them away so i think that sense of value is massively shifted when it comes to the emergence of fast fashion and i think that's a bit that we almost need to do a sense check on is that you cannot be selling things that price level without harming something you know and that is often ethical. It often comes down to how they source materials and the quality of the materials as well, you know, kind of the durability of the quality, all those things have an impact. And I think that's the bit we need to realize. Now I understand that we'll be out of the price range for some, but I think in general, the sense of value perception has to change, you know, because yes, you can keep on buying stuff for $20, but it's going to, it has such a detrimental impact on the planet that by the way that particular chicken will come home to roost at some point right as weather starts to damage more and more our planets and our homes et cetera, that's going to have to be paid somehow you know we're going to have to put money towards all this damage that's being caused and that will eventually come out of one's tax dollars and i think that's really important to also understand is that idea of impact it may not be you know that twenty dollar garment that you bought cheaply is going to impact things down the line and is going to have a destructive component to it. It is going to cause more environmental but also more financial damage.
0: Totally. It's that term, that documentary of the same name, the true cost. So in business, the true cost of something is sort of what doesn't make the line sheet that for whatever reason has been determined that it's not it doesn't need to be calculated into the cost. But that's sort of what we've done with basically our entire consumer culture is we're not considering the true cost of things. And um I think that's kind of what you were just saying.
2: Yes, you said that in a far more concise <laughs> <from general laughs> Oh, no. That's <United>. okay. <laughs> great. And I think, and you know, also no, those brands are not penalized for it, right? That's the kind of also the crazy part mm-hmm. of it. It's like there's no checks and balances for brands who are doing that.
1: I wanted to ask you, Edzard, where do you think consumers are on this? Do you think we're making progress on the whole thing about Our own consumer shifts are going to be key in really creating the new industry, the new paradigm where we can move forward without just destroying our planetary health and our personal health. And what do you see are good signs that people are beginning to catch on if they are?
2: I think there is a shift happening. I think COVID accelerated things. I think there was a a real shift. Now it's slowed down a tiny bit and people are regressing Mm -hmm. a bit. (laughs) Uh, I do think people are becoming more aware. And what I hope, and I also do believe, is that. Sustainability will be the first disqualifying factor in like, is a brand sustainable mm. or not? And then I'll make my decision on what I want, you know? But if a brand's not sustainable, then I won't consider it. And I think that's why the industry will have to shift towards that. But I think the real question for me is like, how quickly will that moment come? And will it be when kind of like the ocean is at our doorstep or <laughs> somewhere? Um, mm-hmm. And will it be too late? There are encouraging signs, and a lot of the stats are pointing to the fact that people do care. Whether it happens quick enough, I mean, we we all know it's already too late, and I do worry that the time, unfortunately, is passing, but yeah, hopefully stuff does continue to change.
0: Going back really quickly to the costing and the price stuff, I've been thinking about this so much just because, well, I guess I'm in the phase of my life. You know, I have friends that are purchasing homes and just general inflation. I don't know how it is in the UK right now, but in the States, it's just inflation Yep. Yeah, with the lack of raise and wages, and it's just so crazy. So I really do think, and this might be like philosophical, but the way that we think about what things cost and how we spend our money, it is a certain set of programming. And for example, to use the property purchasing analogy, it's totally normal to buy a several hundred thousand dollar piece of property or whatever, or house or apartment, and then even if you can't afford it, and you take on a certain amount, and then you just sort of resign like. That's the system like you're like, okay, then I'm going to spend the next 30 years paying this off. And then there's no way in your head to do the math of interest or whatever. You just sort of the bank tells you a number that is cost every day. Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of similar to how we've reasoned in our heads. Yeah, I can go buy a $20, even a $50, even a $100 sweater, like a $100 sweater that I think looks cool it's $100, but it's not 300 you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I might wear it a couple years. But for whatever reason, because we're not used to a dollar amount, and we don't understand the value yet, as you were saying, it's really hard to reason in our minds. And so I think that sort of what has to happen is we just have to think about buying differently and why we are buying things and how often and who wear it's like a totally different set of criteria as you were also saying Mm -hmm. hopefully people will figure out oh if i don't agree with the values of the brand i'm not buying from them in general
1: but part of it is um you talk about the houses and the apartments you know the cost of living in these in the cities just keeps going up and up and everybody's going where will this stop and the thing within fashion is there's this alternative there's this cheap fashion thing system that give someone the answer to that problem they don't have to buy a 300 dollar sweater cuz they can buy the 20 dollar sweater yeah, at the big box store that's true. but the thing is we don't have the messaging i mean we're all working very hard on the messaging obviously mm-hmm. companies like yours sheep inc and uh, you know this podcast and our company lady farmer we produced a line of clothing as well when we first started out this is the messaging. This is this is why we're doing this. And you're asking why it costs so much. And we're so glad you're asking this because this is why. And we give all these reasons, all these things we've been talking about this whole hour. But the question, I think, and none of us here knows, but is this messaging enough? It is just such a, a behemoth of a thing. And as you just said, it's art, you know, in many ways, it looks like... I don't know. We're already behind the eight ball. And can we catch up? But we don't want to be like all doomsday and stuff. And we don't want to tell people there's really nothing you can do. So go ahead and buy that $20 sweater. We want people to feel like they have agency in this somehow.
2: I also think that it becomes about being, it's the good citizen piece, right? I think it comes about how am I being perceived wearing this? Mm -hmm. How am I being perceived driving this? How am I being perceived acting in a certain way? And I think that's where Hopefully, this kind of idea of of wearing fast fashion and wearing, you know, synthetic fibers that becomes more and more something that is slightly looked down upon or or seen as being problematic. To be like here in London, people driving around in mega diesel Range Rovers, you know, and just no need in London to be driving (laughs) a Range Rover, especially one that pumps out diesel. And I think that shift hopefully starts to come a bit into fashion as well. The food industry is the same, right? Where you have this kind of like checks and balances system. that's now starting to more and more take place when you buy food. You know, you do tend to kind of want to understand where does it come from? You kind of want to understand if you're not vegan, like, am I getting free range eggs because you have this image of, you know, the horrible kind of battery chicken egg conditions and you start to bring that thinking into your behavior piece because you don't want to impact. You don't want to hurt the battery chicken <laughs> as it were, right? You want to understand that it's a happy chicken. And I think that's the personal piece. And then I think also from the outside in, people will also, they will look at you if you are not behaving in a certain way or if you are behaving in an environmentally impactful way uh, with a frown on their face, right? And I think those two things hopefully become more prevalent. By the way, as the next generation, the younger generation is already a part of it. It's like, you know, they are against the actions of the older generation, you know, and probably in some ways also massively driving the generation above them to, especially it's their parents to also start thinking about these things, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's a very long winded way of answering the question, but I think all these, these little social dynamics is also what's going to have to click into place for us to start behaving Mm -hmm. in a better way.
0: Yeah. That social pressure is interesting. It's also complicated because there's also the defense, which we've come up against a lot, which is like the perception is that you have to buy expensive things to be environmentally friendly. That's not what it is either. It's sort of with outside of our current understanding. I think that's what's so hard about it is that brands like yours and people who think like us, we're talking about these things. They're kind of old, new ideas. (laughs)
2: Let's
0: go back to actually caring about the people who made our things. Crazy, crazy thoughts. <laughs> what a concept
2: <laughs> yeah but i also think it's like again tesla is kind of an interesting one in all of this right the tesla is I mean, it was an incredibly expensive car they've now kind of like bought some mm-hmm. cheaper cars out but it was like an extremely expensive still is their model s or whatever is like a really expensive yeah. offering but the big thing about it what they have done is they've ushered innovation into the space and they've ushered change into the space therefore you can now mm-hmm. It's going back to that selection process. It's like, if you want to go and buy a more sustainable car, you're going to go and buy an electric car. And then you can go, okay, now what can I afford, right? And then you Mm -hmm. have Tesla at the kind of like the best end of the spectrum or the most innovative. And then you have Mm -hmm. whatever kind of cheaper offerings out there as well that you can go to. And I think that that's going to be the difference of brand in that case, right? Is that hopefully we get to a point where a lot of the brands are starting to behave. You want The best quality, sustainable, you know, the kind of the most innovative, then potentially you go with a brand Mm -hmm. like ours if you want something that's not potentially as innovative when it comes to quality or the manufacturing but still is considered sustainable then you can go somewhere else you know and Mm -hmm. i think that's hopefully again a bit what's going to happen within the fashion space and we will therefore still be a more premium brand proposition in there Mm -hmm. but hopefully we would have ideally also dragged the rest of the industry along with us to also start behaving better and i would argue that Mm -hmm. they Just because of our margins are actually less than a traditional fashion brand. You know, I think quality wise, hopefully we will continue to be kind of excel the average.
0: Right. And I'm glad you said that. I would hope that people listening would understand, hope everyone listening to this podcast understands that. It's not expensive because you're trying to be cool or you're trying to sell this idea. It's literally more sustainable and ethical stuff is more expensive because it costs more to make. And as you just said, your margins, I'm sure, are less than traditional fashion brands. And I think that's another thing that could help change things as soon as people understand that regular, just like traditional, luxury, conventional stuff is like 10, 12 times the profit margin to the cost because it's so low quality. And like, just in your regular store and your regular target, I think the standard is like six times or something like that. So when you're buying cheap things, it's like really, really, really cheap for them to get it. And they're making so much profit.
2: That's exactly right. And you had in the UK, you had um, this kind of massive backlash against this brand here, released a one pound bikini, you know, and mm. all the papers wrote about it. And there should really be no way that you are doing anything Mm -mm. vaguely ethical in your supply chain if you're releasing one pound i mean just think of whether you look at the environment or whether you look at the ethics like someone has to be working Mm. on that garment and you simply cannot be getting any type of cost out of the one pound garment where someone is being paid minimum wage even right we're not even talking Mm. about a fair living wage and yeah that is the huge you know that that, that is again the huge problem in that in that space is that it's the impact that happens behind the scenes is vast
1: Mm -hmm. emma to your point a little bit ago about people buy houses and condos and things because they think that's the stage of life and that this is what they need to do and they get mortgages and they they plan these things for over a long period of time you know 30 years even what if some of these brands like yours ed's are offered you know we have this this sweater for instance maybe three hundred dollars and you can pay on it for like a year. And I wonder if that would make people really internalize the idea of investing in your clothing and investing in quality clothing, because most people shop a long time for their house. You know, they shop a long time for their things that are going to designate a quality of life and living in a healthy, sound way. And our three basic daily needs are food, clothing, and shelter, to your point as art. You said people are starting to pay more attention to food, beginning just to pay more attention to clothing, but I wonder if we reframe clothing in, in, in the way that we think about housing and, and are beginning to think more about food. Is that a crazy idea um, <laughs> that we talk about ter- clothing in terms of? Respect? Crazy! You're crazy, um, mom.
2: I know. But I think that idea of it being an investment. I think I think that's kind of what sits at the core of it, right? I think that's the interesting mindset shift, where it's like, okay, I'm going to have this thing, and I have have it for a long time. I mean, I remember when my dad died, and he had all this knitwear, and he'd had it since he was like 30, right? So he'd had it for like 50 years, and I inherited it, and it was in great condition, and it was all really good quality stuff. And you go like, this has had a long life, and will continue to have, actually have value. Maybe not purchase price value, but it will continue to have value. And that for me is also that that's that mindset. It's like I'm buying something now that is going to be an investment. And by the way, and I would argue that's actually where luxury fashion brands, they do try to instill a bit of that, right? So you buy whatever handbag or some bag, the bag, mm-hmm. like, it, this thing will continue to appreciate in value. It's an investment. I think that is mm-hmm. a valid way of kind of, of framing that particular item, right? I think that that is important. It's not something you're just buying to kind of throw away. And so I think that's where you can take some cues from luxury fashion, taking Mm -hmm. whether, whether it's been made in the proper way, kind of aside from it, it's more like, what am I doing when I'm actually buying this thing? Am I treating it as an investment? Because at that point you could argue that if you have something for 80 years, like if it was slightly harmful in its making then it's more than offset by the fact that you've worn it for eight years and right and you didn't need to buy five more of them exactly you didn't need to buy five more of them and you didn't need to um, you know kind of like replace it with with fast fashion impact mm-hmm. you know
0: so kind of on this subject wool which a lot of people think okay wool sweaters that's just one season out of the year but I love what you guys are doing with offering products like t-shirts and shorts so let's talk about summer wool and why does that work? Why is that a good idea?
2: So it's kind of crazy, but wool is a very, very good summer regulator, right? The sheep that we get from in New Zealand, they have to withstand very hot summers, very cold winters. So the wool, therefore the fleece itself adapts to those conditions, right? It understands that it has to be kind of more kind of like letting out heat in the summer and it has to retain the heat when it comes to the winter. So again. It's very, very good at thermoregulating. We also treat it with something called eternity X care, which is again, totally chlorine free, no harmful chemicals that increase the thermoregulating, but also kind of almost like added cooling effects to the art. So you can wear it in there and you can wear it in the summer. And the t-shirt is great. I bought it here in London and kind of, we just had a heat wave. It's like 28 degrees and it wears incredibly well. And it just kind of always feels kind of cool against the touch. So ours is, I would argue, particularly good at thermoregulating, but merino wool in itself is already very good at regulating temperature. So this idea that cotton or linen is the only material to go go for in the summer is not necessarily totally, totally accurate. Wool can definitely, definitely stand alongside it.
0: That's so awesome. I don't know if I'd ever heard of a wool t-shirt before. But I'm excited to. Yeah, it's like
2: I'm wearing one. It's great. It's
0: comfy. <laughs> yeah, I think I recognize that. I'm, I'm actually oh. wearing a wool sweater right now because it was like slightly cool when I woke up today, just in my house. And this is also a regenerative wool sweater from a California brand. And nice. It really, it's true. Like I, I am mean, it's summer, and I like wearing the sweater in the mornings. <laughs> so there.
2: It does, it's like it wears, it does wear very like Just it's comfortable, you know?
1: Yeah. So we talk about these things being long lasting as an investment, but is there a point where the natural fibers will break down in a natural way, like in nature, whereas people, do they perceive that something, poly, a blend or a polyester or something is longer lasting because it has these synthetic materials? I'm thinking of examples of like, you know, where you get organic cotton undergarments or something that do maybe not last as long as a synthetic thing, but you have to make the decision that you're going to do it because it's organic cotton and that's what you want to wear against your body and that's what you want. You don't want something to go in the landfill that's going to be there Mm for 50 years. So when you talk about durability, is that sort of nuanced in terms of organic and natural materials? On
2: durability, I think cotton tends to also degrade in quality because you have to wash it a lot, right? You wear a cotton t-shirt once, you tend to have to wash it, you know? And in the washing cycle, it naturally just, it's always degrading in quality. So in that sense, wool really doesn't need to, I've got sweaters I've just never washed, you know, and it really Mm -hmm. doesn't do anything to it. Uh, and so I think that's the big thing is that as n- merino wool is a self-cleansing fiber. So you really, unless you've done something particularly kind of exhausting in it, or you just feel like you want to give it a wash, then you don't really need to. So I think that plays a part in the longevity of uh, it, is that you don't need to put it into a washing cycle. Now, I think the big question is, I think it's more about the appearance of wool, that over time you get pilling and all of that, but the piece there that i think is a big educational piece it's like you can maintain the sweater you know i think it is a lot of people wear it starts to peel a bit they go like oh, it looks no it looks rubbish i'm gonna get rid of it because mm-hmm. it just looks tatty and I think that's a big piece there to understand is that you can, you get a little pill code, We send everything with a little pill codes, And so you kind of clean it. But you can also get these electric fa- fabric shavers, which are amazing. And you just pass them over the garment and it makes the garment look kind of brand new again. I think that's, again, that's an education piece, right? It's like you can maintain these garments. And if you maintain them well, they can last a long, long time. If you snag them or anything like that and you need to have them repaired. But. It's
1: true. I think that's going to be a huge learning curve for consumers that right there because we're so conditioned really geared toward yep. cleaning
0: things and as soon as something like breaks or doesn't look as new anymore we've been conditioned to think oh I need a new one or this doesn't work anymore we have oh. lost the art of maintenance
1: yeah I think in general That's true. And I was also talking about just if this is a little dirty, it has a spot on it, spray something on it, throw it in the wash, hot water. You know, we're really not educated on how to care for things because it's all a vicious cycle because they're so cheap and it Mm -hmm. doesn't matter if it gets a hole or whatever. So the thing about wool really not needing to be washed I think that's a real discovery for a lot of people it has been for me and even when you know that it's still tempting to want to clean it or you know whatever I was talking to a fiber artist just the other day about wool felting yep and I was wanting to experiment with that I would say but how do you clean it before you felt it and she was saying you don't have to you know, I have sheep. I love to work with the wool. I'm trying to learn to work with it more. And that's kind of a hard thing to get your head around. So I think that's worth just talking about a lot, the properties of these natural materials and their needs. And you just don't treat them like everything else. And that's how you protect your investment. So kind of close that loop there. Yeah,
2: <laughs> No, totally. And I think it it also, that's where this thing of like, if you have a nice handbag or if you have a nice pair of shoes, funny enough, I think you probably do spend a bit of time maintaining it and making sure that Mm -hmm. it looks and stays good, right? You polish your shoes, (laughs) put shoe trees in them, whatever it is. And like our other garments often don't get that same amount of respect.
0: Right. Yeah. Edzard, are you familiar with the term slow living? Do you know about that?
2: No, but... I could hazard a guess.
0: So, you know, slow food, probably. Yeah. And Like slow fashion. Yes. So this podcast, generally, we love to talk about slow living. And I'm just interested, without giving you any more information, what does it mean to you?
2: So I imagine a lot of it comes down to consideration. So slowing down to make decisions, I think that's for me would be the big obviously it's in fashion it's relatively easy to go something that has been considered and taken a bit of time to make and arriving with use you know slower not to have everything speedy speedy immediate gratification but i think that more for me personally i think it is more about slowing down and making the right decisions you know and making sure that you don't just impulse buy everything you actually look into stuff before you buy it
1: so edzard what makes sheep ink unique in the world of sustainable fashion and we want to hear all about your connected dot.
2: When you get a sweater from us, it has a little NFC tag in it that you scan with your phone and we connect you with a sheep on the same farm your sweater's wool is from. And there's this idea of bringing you back in touch and making you aware of the provenance behind the things that you buy. And I think that's part of this slow living piece. It's just like, again, taking the time to consider where has this come from? What impact has it had before you make purchasing decisions? We have a supply chain that we can obviously be proud of. And so we wanted to make sure also that everybody understood exactly the the provenance basically behind every single garment that we buy. So we built a digital supply chain tracking software that basically looks at every single part of the supply chain and registers information of events happening throughout the supply chains. That means that we can see the unique journey for every single piece of clothing that we create. And that helps us internally because we can track garments, but also it allows the customer to see the history of the garment. Now, the big thing with transparency and such a buzzword in the industry is that my opinion on it is that transparency, of course, is needed. It's hundred percent. We need to get to this transparency. You need to have transparency to understand where your impact is, et cetera. But the consumer change piece is not going to be driven by simply offering up transparency because the consumer doesn't really care. Like it's not that interesting to know all this very detailed provenance piece behind the garments. So we said, well, we need to make that experience of Provenance more interesting, inherently kind of more emotionally engaging. Fashion is obviously an an emotional media. So we said, Well, if we're gonna be talking about provenance, why don't we actually make people connected to the provenance? How can we do that? Well, the way that we do that is by making them adopt a sheep basically on the same farm that the sweaters will is from. So when you get the garment, it again has a little NFC tag in it, you tap it with your phone, and we give you the whole history, but we also connect you with a sheep on the same farm. So you can see where it is, you can see it's Bio its details and it's just this kind of this simple mechanic where it just makes the provenance real you know it's like you start to think about the fact that oh, this actually came from a machine which is I think a piece that we've kind of lost touch with in in our purchasings we've talked about here is like we don't think anymore about where things come from we just pick something up we try it on we like it we can afford it we buy it you know and I think that's the big piece that needs to change again is there needs to be this consideration and the only way you're going to do that is by triggering some demonic device that's going to have people go like hey, how, do, how do i trigger something that, that makes me think about where it comes from mm-hmm. for us that's a sheep which is probably the opposite analogy of what we were talking about before with the kind of the battery chicken where you think about <laughs> wanting it to be a battery chicken in our case you want to think about the happy sheep that sits it, behind
0: it. yeah it reminds me of are you familiar with the show portlandia
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah i remember the chicken in that yeah isn't that great? Yeah,
0: there's a literally scene where they sit down at yeah. and they're like, can you see the chicken's papers? Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, that's what it reminds
1: me of. But in a good way.
2: It, it's exactly I love that. that. Yeah.
1: Are you literally connected with like an individual sheep, like, like with a name and everything?
2: So You can name it. You can give it a nickname. But yes, it is an individual sheep. Oh my gosh. You know, all the sheep are registered. And we're, we're doing some quite cool stuff in... Um, Q3, that's going to make that experience more involved and kind of more connected. At the moment, it's, I think it's fun, but I think we're about to move it to kind of the next level of experience um, because we already want to make it more engaging. But yeah, it is, it is a real sheep. Like all the sheep have NFC, also NFC technologies. They have tracker tags and so they, you get and they get weighed and they'll just get all the stats and the pregnancy scans, etc. So you can actually get all that information that sits then in a farm database. Oh. We can pull that through to the customer. Wow.
1: That's amazing. Oh, my gosh. I really appreciate like how also on your website, you answer a lot of the questions that people have about the humaneness of shearing sheep and some of the mm-hmm. methods that you know, people have heard about that are scary. What is it? The mulesing? Is that how you say that? No, think- and you explain how you guys don't allow that people again it it circles back around so much to education people get these ideas about things that are bad or things that are good and it's just the transparency is so key and you do a good job on your website of uh, explaining why it's not only okay to shear sheep but very necessary for their health and comfort yeah and in fact it's cruel not to shear sheep (laughs) a lot of people just don't understand that. So it's another way, in sort of you're, you're sort of leveling up people's awareness of supply chain issues and practices. And
2: thank you. The unfortunate reality, I think, we've entered this such like binary, black white world, right? Where it's like you either yeah. sit on one side, and it's not. And I think that's the yes. We always need to bring that nuance back into the conversation a bit, where. Mm-hmm. not one thing is always totally bad and not one thing is always totally good. You know, it's like that. There, there can be, in, in the case of Will, for instance, mm-hmm. there can be a more nuanced conversation there, which is both. I think that you talk about the evolving customer. We see a lot of challenge to our concepts. Like, you know, a lot of people are coming out and they go, what about this? What about this? What about this? You know? And we see that almost as a positive though. We see that is mm-hmm. customers are becoming more informed, they are starting to challenge. They are starting to understand that there's a lot of brands out there who are greenwashing their claims. And for us, even though it's often tedious to have to get a line of attack that you then have to counter, I do yeah. think that it is an encouraging sign that people are starting to more and more think about where things come from. They are starting to challenge the assumptions made by a lot of these brands. That means people are becoming more important.
0: Yeah, that's a great way to think about it. That's a I agree. spin, thank you. So what does the good dirt mean to you?
2: Good dirt, good soil.
0: Yeah, good, good dirt. Soil. That's
2: it, good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that can sequester carbon.
0: Yeah, well, that's what it's all about. That's the basis of it, right?
2: Yeah. yeah but I think that's it. You know, that's it's the non disruption of good soil, right? I mean, that's, that's again the big part of the regenerative farming process is to making sure that mm-hmm. the soil can have time to both well, sequester carbon, doesn't get disturbed, and has good roots.
0: Definitely. So, absolutely. Is there anything else that you want to leave with our audience or that you want people to know about? sheep inc maybe i don't know if we talked about what sheep inc actually means i thought it was like sheep incorporated but i don't know if you want to talk about the name or anything else
2: so it is sheep included i think that no the, the only other thing maybe that's of interest is we also invest three percent of our revenue back into our supply chain into biodiversity projects so we do that on the uh, we call it the radical farming fund and what we do is we Again, no, can never have enough positive impact. So we we invest into the farms we work with. These kind of in setting projects to make sure that again there is a positive impact happening there.
0: Very cool. Yes, I have one more little question. Just something that I'm curious about. I'm just curious in how you raise the resources for this incredible supply chain that you've set up. Is there a good amount of venture funding for this kind of thing? There's just not a ton of companies in the states that I know of that are doing this of stuff or are you totally bootstrapped or have you gotten this far
2: so, so it's a mixture of both actually we've got great angel investors who came into the business and we try to be as disciplined okay. as possible this idea well, we have big ambitions for the company we think that it can be something it can turn into something relatively um iconic yeah but we've tried to very much kind of both bootstrap it and but saying that we also have a great bunch of investors and by the way the farms also investors in our business They've also come in, which is great to have such kind of aligned investors. That's super cool.
0: Yeah, I'm always curious about that just because having been on this side of it with our clothing, we haven't gotten to anywhere near the scale that many of the brands that we even interview are at. But it's just so layered and complex and expensive to do things the right way. So I also think that that is a really important part of the conversation as far as transparency goes. Like how are the, what's the word I'm looking for, the pioneers getting the resources to forge ahead because it's uh, very risky. And again, it's hard to create a product that the consumer doesn't quite exactly understand yet, but yeah. we're getting there.
2: We're certainly getting there, hopefully.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Kicking and screaming. We better. Dragged and kicking and screaming into it. But yes.
1: Yeah. How can our audience connect with you and find you and follow you and, and where should they go to learn more about sheep ink?
2: You can, obviously our website, it's got hopefully a lot of information on it, com or our Instagram, also Sheepink. It's all pretty straightforward. <laughs> and then if you want to email any questions to us, just email the, our, our team as theflock at sheepink.com.
0: Cool. I can say your website is super informative and engaging and really fun to click around. So thank you. Yeah. I recommend it. Good <laughs> job. Yeah. Well, thank you so much,
2: Edzard. Great to talk to you both. Thank
1: you so much. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Bye. (laughs) Bye -bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Good Dirt Podcast.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll share it with a friend to spread the good dirt. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow-living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on
0: Instagram at we are Lady Farmer. That's we are Lady Farmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on the Good Dirt. Goodbye.